Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and Schools, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's Saturday, January 14th, 2023. What we like to do on Saturdays, here and there, usually, uh, is actually look at tomorrow's uh, texts that are put before us, specifically those that uh, I don't usually preach from. Uh, that would be the Old Testament and the Epistle. They usually tie in pretty well, but uh, not always, and sometimes they lead us down other paths that are worth considering, maybe not in the preaching, but uh, in another context. So we do that here. Um, let's see. I see you checking in on the chat. We've got Karen. Uh, Chris is back on Facebook. Must have figured it out. Gus and Eileen on Facebook. Michael and Vicky are on YouTube. As long as my chat's working, I think the comments get shared over to YouTube from Facebook, so you can see those. Uh, Chris says, I need God, God's, God, first of all, but I also need his people and uh, their chat and oh, the hymns. I need them every morning. Good. I would agree. I think it's one of the um, advantages, of course, to digital technology, although it can be abused and used for nefarious purposes, can also be used for the uh, support and needs of God's people that we can mutually console and comfort one another uh, together. And here we can do this each morning. I'm not the only one doing it. I, I don't know uh, who came first, but uh, I know of many brother pastors now that are doing something daily with their congregation using uh, digital media. Um, and uh, we don't have to <laughs> we don't have to be super efficient about these things. We can all uh, do it individually and and to the peculiar and particular um, tradition or or um, comfort level or um, even just needs of of their of our local congregations which I think is actually quite beautiful. So yeah, we thank God for this technology. Uh, let's see. Oh, my Aunt Nancy checked in and so did, my, so did my folks. So good to have you all here today. Tomorrow is the second Sunday after Epiphany, which is the um, wedding at Cana from John chapter two. And so what we'll, but we also have an Old Testament and Epistle reading that, hmm, I don't know, they tie in in different ways than you might expect. Um, not in particular to marriage, but actually in other ways. So we'll try to cover some of those themes today to help prepare us to hear the word tomorrow. If you've got coffee, uh, get some and try it. Of course, you know where my coffee comes from. And uh, there we go. All right, so let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, memory verse one more time. This lovely instruction from uh, St. Peter at the Feast of Pentecost to the whole assembly gathered there. All right. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Acts 2, verse 38 and 39. Our psalm this week is Psalm 72. 
Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. Crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame as long as continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Uh, actually, before we move on, let's uh, hear a little meditation from <clears throat> uh, Patrick Henry Reardon, a lovely book I share with you frequently. Christ, I'm sorry, I didn't hold it up high enough. Christ in the Psalms. So a great way to accompany your daily psalm reading, one of many resources. Um, another that you might consider is... Where did it go? Oh, this one, which is reading the Psalms with Luther. All right. So, um, but basically, he gives a little introduction and then a little prayer after each Psalm. So, that's another way to read through the Psalms. I'm sure there's other companion volumes too. All right. Psalm 72 in the Hebrew, right? Good. Psalm 71, Hebrew 72, is often referred to as a messianic psalm. I've talked about that throughout the week. In the sense that it is concerned with God's anointed king. Considering only the simplest reading of this psalm, it's difficult to escape the impression that it was composed for use at ceremonies of royal coronation, the point, the ritual point of dynastic transition. For example, grant your justice to the king, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. The title added to this psalm does, in fact, ascribe it to Solomon, the first successor to the, to the Davidic throne. Two narrative sections of Holy Scripture readily come to mind in connection with the themes of Psalm 71. The first text is 2 Samuel 7, containing Nathan's great prophecy about the royal house of David, which now became the beneficiary of a special covenant to guarantee that his descendants would reign forever over his kingdom. That's 2 Samuel 7, right? The promise of the king that would reign forever. A number of lines in our psalm, especially those pertaining to the permanence and extension of David's royal house, reflect that historical text. 
The second pertinent passage is 1 Kings 3, which describes Solomon's prayer for the wise heart that would enable him to govern God's people justly. Repeated throughout this psalm mention um, is made of the justice and wisdom that would characterize God's true and anointed one. Both aspects of Psalm 71, as well as the two narrative texts that it reflects, proved to be more than slightly problematic in Israel's subsequent history. Right? So there's this great confession of Solomon, but it's not actually lived out, practically speaking, in the life of Israel, um, at least not for a very long time. For example, Solomon's vaunted wisdom as a ruler that which for which he prayed at Gibeah didn't last even into the end of his lifetime. And it was displayed among his posterity with, not to put too fine a point on it, a rather indifferent frequency. So sometimes he's wise, sometimes he's quite unwise. Uh, for example, the number of wives and concubines in his household, I think we can all agree is unwise. Certainly contrary to God's word. All right. Similarly, what is to be said about the permanence of the reign of David's household over God's people? More than half of that kingdom broke away shortly after the death of David's first successor, nor was any Davidic king ever again to reign on his throne after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. What then could be said for either prophecy of Nathan or the prayer of Solomon? How were the promises in this psalm to be understood? Question <laughs> mark. As Christians, of course, we believe that the inner substance of all these prefigurings finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Lord, the goal of biblical history and the divining, defining object of all biblical prophecy. It's the confession of Christ. The archangel Gabriel announced the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies when he told the mother of the Messiah that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, verse 32 and 33, right? So the angel Gabriel says, this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. <laughs> Yet other angels announced to the shepherds that there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ or Messiah, the Lord. Luke 2, he was to be at once David's offspring and his Lord. See Mark 12, 35 to 37, also Psalm 110. As for Solomon, was he a wise king? Well, in measure, to be sure, but now, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. If Solomon's wish was to rule God's people wisely and with righteousness, a word that comes up repeatedly in our psalm, what the, shall we say of the one whom the New Testament calls our wisdom and our righteousness? 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 30. All right, so clearly fulfilled in Christ. The liturgical use of this psalm during the festal days of Christmastide so here we are, suggests still further dimensions of its fulfillment, particularly the anticipated universality of the Messiah's kingdom. For example, consider these lines. The Ethiopians, usually meaning any of Africa south of Egypt, shall fall down before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. All right. Uh, that was in from the Hebrew. Uh, where's the licking the dust bit? It's the oppressor, right? I think it was the oppressor licks the dust, but it's the queens, the kings of Sheba and Seba, and those would be the, yeah, those of Egypt. Oh, there it is. Uh, licking the dust is verse nine. Uh, let's see. I'll fall down. Oh, the desert tribes is how it's translated from the Hebrew. May desert tribes bow down before him. In Greek, in the Septuagint, it's interpreted as, um, as Ethiopia. Interesting. 
The kings of Tarsus, that's Spain, and in, of the islands, Corsica, Sardinia, Sicily, Crete, Cyprus, and Rhodes, shall offer gifts, and kings of Arabia and Saba shall bring offerings. And all the kings shall bow down before him, and all nations serve him. Right. So sometimes the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is, is quite helpful um, to understand what territories are being talking, are spoken of here. Such lines must put one in mind of those wise kings who came down to bo- um, bow down before the Christ child, especially in light of the Psalms later line that says, and he shall live and shall receive the gold of Arabia. See Matthew 2. Right? No matter how successful his reign, no other king in history fulfilled the hopes outlined in Psalm 71, Hebrews 72. The kingdom here described is truly not a kingdom of this world, but it's of Christ's kingdom. Perfect. Okay, let's confess our catechism for the week. What is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word, which is that word of God. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Which are these words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. All right, uh, we actually have two options for our Old Testament text tomorrow. Uh, one is the, um, let's see if I can check it here. Uh, yes, one is Exodus 33 and the other is Amos 9. And so we're using the Amos 9 reading uh, tomorrow. All right, so let's look at that. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the way cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them and they shall make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their own land, or in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. All right, so a prophetic uh, promise here that uh, has never been fulfilled, although it doesn't stop uh, the world's nations from trying to fulfill it of their own accord, right, in planting, uh, replanting a nation of Israel. Um, but anyway, uh, never mind the United Nations. This promise is fulfilled in the Christian church. All right. Um, so we have the, the temple being raised up, the tabernacle of David being raised up again. Uh, of course that temple is not the one that was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. Um, not the one rebuilt by Herod, which Jesus clearly disavows and says that not one stone upon another uh, will be laid here. Um, but rather, he says, um, the dwelling place of God with man is in is in his person, right? The temple curtain is torn in two. Um, as John says in John 1, the word um, tabernacled amongst us and we beheld his glory, right? Jesus. So the temple is Christ in his body, right? 
So that is the fulfillment of the tabernacle that was fallen down. But we also have, um, well, a couple mentions of wine. And so there you go. That's the connection, I think, to the, old, uh, to the gospel text of the wedding at Cana with the water turned to wine, right? So you have uh, the mountains dripping with sweet wine and the hills flowing with it. Um, also, they shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them and make gardens and eat fruit from them, right? So you, you have wine as a... Uh, sign of joy and of uh, that gives um, that how does the psalmist say it uh, wine delighteth the heart of man right this of course is coming at the end of amos and uh, well maybe you didn't know that this is uh, the last chapter of amos uh, it, but it actually comes after some pretty intense uh, confession uh, and recalls to repentance by amos you know, the book starts this way. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn at the top and the top of Carmel withers. For the for three transgressions of Damascus and for four will not turn away his punishment. The Lord says, right, he's going to bring judgment upon all the people. And he does it with each individual nation. All right. So Amos, uh, let's see, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three is all judgment, right? Chapter 4, Israel did not accept correction. Uh, chapter 5 is a lament for Israel and a call for repentance again. And then the day of the Lord coming, which is the day that brings judgment, right? Um, whether it be wailing, right, as the Lord comes through. And then warnings to also to Zion and to Samaria in chapter 6. Um, and then all the vision, the judgment visions of the locusts and the fire and the plumb line, right? I mean, this is a really... A really intense book. Then we get to chapter eight. All right. And chapter eight starts this way. Thus says, thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I so I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. The songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out of silence. Right. So I mean pretty harsh words of judgment, right? And you're like, well, how can that be connected to what we just heard? Well, the beginning of chapter nine goes this way. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts, this is of the temple, right? That the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay them or slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Right? Uh, there's no escape from the judgment that is to come. Right? The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and he, and all who dwell there mourn. Right? We haven't read Amos, but whew, it's pretty intense stuff. All right? But listen, after all of that judgment, then comes verse 11 through 15. I mean, this is the very end of the book. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle for David. So we've had nine intense chapters of judgment and destruction. But at the very end, there's the that turn where it's like, um, but I will restore you again. Listen to what Luther has to say. Right? And I'm going to read some of his notes on chapter 8 and chapter 9. The final two chapters of this prophet are his last two discourses. With them, he acts as if he were tired of preaching and prophesies that the entire people will be utterly destroyed, both for the kingdom and for the priesthood. 
The way he speaks about the destruction and captivity at the hand of Babylon is really very similar to the very last destruction and captivity which took place at the time of Christ, when the priesthood too perished along with his kingdom. All right, so Luther's making a really important point. Amos is prophesying of what the destruction that's about to come on Jerusalem at the time of Babylon, but of course it points forward to the destruction that will come on, in the time of Jesus, and finally the destruction that will be brought upon the whole earth on the last day. Right? Uh, we call that, I think, proleptic prophecy. I think I can't remember. There's a word for it. All right. Um, so as we've been talking about with Ezekiel in our Sunday Bible study, um, so join us in person for that tomorrow. There's uh, Ezekiel certainly has in mind the coming judgment upon um, the temple, right? So he's again prophesying of the judgment that is to come from Babylon, but of the final destruction of that temple in 586. On on the other hand, it's also pointing forward to um, our continual idolatry and the destruction that Jesus brings upon it as well. Again, for our sake. All right. Um, so uh, let's skip all the bit about judgment, more judgment, more judgment, famine, etc., etc. All right. Here's what he says about chapter nine. As I have said, the last two chapters are devoted completely to the final destruction of the entire kingdom and priesthood. The preceding chapter deals strictly with the ruin of the kingdom. This final one takes a look at the destruction of the priesthood, as we shall see in the vision. All right, so that's what it's dealing with. But then listen to what happens in Acts 11, or in, uh, excuse me, I get ahead of myself, in verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the tent of David. This passage, so Amos 9 verse 11, is quoted in Acts 15, 16 to 18. All right, so New Testament interprets Old Testament. In Acts uh, 15, this is with um, the Council of Jerusalem, all right? So we have Peter and James, and then uh, Paul and Barnabas before the council, all right? Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take them out of the people for his name. And with these words, the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes um, Amos 9, verse 11. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Okay, and then James continues, known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Right, so that's the conflict, um, is the gospel for both Jew and Gentile, right? Even though Jesus repeated demonstrations and, and words, uh, you know, that this, this message was for all people, um, it doesn't seem the apostles are completely on, the, on board with that. <laughs> All right. So then they have this major conflict because of uh, Paul's work. Right. So they summon Paul to counsel. Uh, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So James says, okay, here's a compromise, right? They can they can convert, although we want them to do a few Moses things. <laughs> uh, of course, Paul has many things to say about that in his epistles. But, uh, you know, for the sake of, um, 
moderation, I suppose, uh, they agree to this. All right. Get back to where I was. There we are. All right. Uh, Luther continues. Let me summarize it. Uh, when I have destroyed the kingdom and the priesthood, I will gather the pieces of the tent of David, which has fallen and rebuild it into it will come even people from every nation who are going to believe, although they are not of the house of David. As I have said, we must properly take this to mean the kingdom of Christ. The tent of David, understand this as the people of David, the descendants of David, as we have said in Isaiah 11.1, 1, where he says in the same effect, there shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse. This is the kingdom of David from which the Messiah was to rule. It clearly had been an object of contempt. It had almost died out and ceased to exist when Christ came. Only insignificant dregs survived. It was like a dead torso. It was not a fl in flower. It had fallen. It had been broken. But when Christ came, it was revived. The dead stump flowered and brought forth an outstanding flower and fruit. Everything was renewed and restored. All that had been broken down was rebuilt. And everything was made most beautiful. All, again, all in Christ. In a wonderful way, this is an elegant and beautiful prophecy. Because he has said that out of the, that very despicable tribe of Judah, which had nearly ceased to exist, he would build for himself an outstanding church of the elect, a church filled with grace and the Holy Spirit, and made noble by the Spirit. He, of course, is speaking of the retinue of the Spirit, in which the entire kingdom of David was administered, for it had rulers filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, uh, let me just skip to the end here. And he will turn back the captivity of my people. All right, the very last verse. He is speaking about a spiritual leading and turning back. After all, he made the corporeal threat earlier that he would hand them over into captivity. All were brought back with this leading back, as many as believed the gospel when Christ came and were brought into the tent of David by faith. All right, that's, so that's us. There, there, there is the greatest security, peace, and joy of conscience. Those who dwell there produce rich fruit. Strengthened in faith by the Holy Spirit given from heaven, they will not be moved out of it forever. Moses always ordered them to act, and they never did. Therefore, the promises which were also made to them were promised in vain. Here, however, the Lord himself is promising that he will act and he will bring back, that he will set in place. Therefore, it will be fulfilled that they will not be plucked up, etc. Praise be to Christ, 1525. All right. So, um, <laughs> It's quite quite an amazing text, actually, if you go and look at the full context of Amos to see this wonderful promise at the end. Um, but this is much like what Jacob promises um, at his deathbed to his sons, right? When he's giving that blessing, Jacob promises that the Lord will be with them and that he will return them, right? Now, we know it takes 400 years, so it's a long time. Um, but God makes this promise. He repeatedly makes this promise to exiles when people are taken into exile, whether it's Babylon or under Assyria right? Or in Egypt, that, um, you know, I will return you to your land. Or even to Joseph when he flees uh, murderous Herod seeking Jesus's life, you know, that he restores him again, right? And this is for us too, right? Um, God has not left us, but that he is with us even as we are in, in exile of a sort here until he comes again and brings about the new heavens and new earth, right? So he hasn't left us, actually he promised, I will be with you always, to the end of the age, right? In, by baptism and through his word of preaching and teaching. All right, see Matthew 28 for that. All right, so a lovely promise. And then, of course, we see it beginning to be restored in Jesus at the wedding at Cana, where uh, he makes um, even water into wine to bring joy to the people as his kingdom um, is amongst them, right? 
Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the kingdom. There's the son of David. There is um, the throne being occupied again and the temple being rebuilt, actually, in Jesus. That'd be a good sermon, too. All right. <laughs> Romans 12. This is our epistle for tomorrow. I think, again, there's an alternate. This is the one that I chose. Uh, let's see here. Yep. Romans or Ephesians 5 is the other option, which is particular to marriage. So maybe that would fit better. But uh, we're, we're using the alternate here. Having the gifts differing according to the grace that it was given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. All right, so here, this is the end of a uh, long section from uh, Paul's um, letter to the Romans. Um, arguably, this section maybe begins at chapter 6, you might say, all the way through chapter 12. And so you see here uh, what we could call the fruit of faith, right? What what does the life of the Christian look like as the Spirit works um, through that repentance of forgiveness of sins that is given uh, in baptism and in the preaching of, of God's Word? Right? And uh, so it's a description of the Christian community as the Holy Spirit works it, right? Uh, now, in, in one sense, though, it, it's an, there's an exhortation here that we not get in the way of the Spirit's work. <clears throat> so he says, having then gifts according to the grace of God, let us, right? So that's that, uh, what's called hortatory speech. I don't know uh, what that means, but it, it simply means don't get in the way, right? So um, if you have prophecy, then prophesy. If you've been given ministry, then minister. If you've been given to teach, then teach. If you've been given to exhort, then exhort, right? Um, if you give, then do it with liberality, right? which is just um, basically live uh, as you've been given to, to live, you know, within your vocations that God has given you, and do so without um, without constraint or restraint, right? But according to those gifts. And uh, it's kind of a frustration, I, I suppose, because it seems like a lot of times people within the church um, are always looking for permission um, or for direction. And uh, that can be done, of course, but but maybe, maybe the better thing to say is... Uh, Maybe help people identify who they are and what they've been given, um, and then and just encourage them to do so. Right? Yeah. Oh, so you so you uh, like to entertain guests in your home? Well, then invite people into your home. Right? Hospitality. Uh, you you like to care for the poor? So then care for the poor. Right? Right? Uh, how can we help? Right? How can we come along? We also see that uh, the existence of the church in the world is one that um, often seems to behave contrary to what we're seeing around us. Right? So you might think of, you know, those famous uh, photos of, say, bombed out Berlin, you know, when they, when the English were bombing Berlin, and yet you see within, or, or the other way, <coughs> when the, the Germans were bombing, um, say, England, uh, and yet you see Christians gathered together in churches that don't even have roofs anymore, 
gathered around Christ's word and sacrament uh, to be forgiven, to be encouraged. Right? You say, well, how could they do such a thing? Didn't they have more important things to do? No, they didn't. <laughs> That's the point. right? Um, but also notice that the character of Christians um, is to be uh, in that mutual consolation and comfort that uh, Chris is so encouraged by. She uh, mentioned in the comments right, on Facebook that, um, that we weep with one another. This is why I encourage you that when we have a funeral, whether you knew the person or not, or you know even any of the, the members, that you, sh- that you come to the funeral, if at all possible, right, so that you can weep with them um, and uh, make friends by re- means of unrighteous mammon, right? Even your time uh, can be a great way to win some friends. Um, also joy, right? I, I've never understood why uh, we limit, um, say, weddings to only those whom we know. I mean, there should be an open invite, especially to the members of the congregation, to, you know, anyone who would like to attend of the congregation should be welcome, right? Or maybe even the community. Come on out, right? And you're like, oh, but it's going to cost so much money. Well, maybe maybe what you're trying to pull off at the wedding is, um, you know, outside your means, right? So maybe worry less about the food. Maybe even just say, hey, how about bring a dish to share? <laughs> Can you imagine a potluck at a wedding? Why not, right? Okay. So, uh, but again, so that we can rejoice with one another and celebrate the gift of marriage. As an, or rejoice in the um, the promise of the resurrection as someone um, who has died in the Lord, right? And that we can um, grieve with those. Be of the same mind, right? Associate with one another. Don't think of, um, uh, well, in humility, recognize your own weakness, right? And so don't be afraid to attend, say, Bible study, thinking, oh, maybe I already know all of that, or maybe I don't know any of it. Well, isn't that the point, right? Is that we each come having different um aptitude, I suppose, and we build each other up that way. Those who know and are capable of teaching can contribute. I always look forward to people coming knowing more about a book than I do. Um, they can fill in the gaps that maybe I, I don't know, or coming with other resources too that can help contribute um, to the teaching that day. That's not um, that's not intimidating to me at all. <clears throat> I actually quite appreciate the insights. Uh, this happens to me almost daily with the children. They they bring and bring insights to our study that I hadn't thought of, right? It's not that they know a lot more, you know, and as, as far as book knowledge, um, but they have insight. All right. Um, so so you really have a wonderful picture of here. I think I'm safely safe to say of the Christian Church in a broad sense, but the local congregation. This would be a great way to communicate the vision of what Christ has uh, for the congregation. In a congregation that can celebrate things like marriage. So think of tomorrow with the wedding at Cana and how um, it seems like everybody's invited. I mean, Jesus and his um, disciples, um, but his family too, his brothers, his mother, they are all there. Um, cousins, and maybe it's a family wedding, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe he just they just know him. They know of his family in Cana. Maybe Joseph had done some work in Cana. <laughs> Of course, their weddings went on for, for many days as well. That's one of the reasons why the, the wine uh, runs out. All right. So, uh, by the way, this text uh, from, from Paul here in uh, Romans, Romans chapter 12, it's actually used in the uh, preface to the book of Concord. So this is all the princes um, who, scri- uh, who signed off on the book of Concord. The... Um, Listen to what they have to say here. I'll just share a little bit of this, and then I want to talk to you a bit more about marriage. Um, oh, where should I jump in? Maybe we'll just leave the marriage till tomorrow. Yeah, let me just share this with you. 
Now, about the, the condemnation, censures, and rejections of godless doctrines in the Book of Concord, and especially about what has arisen concerning the Lord's Supper, these had to be clearly set forth in this, our declaration, uh, thorough explanation, and decision about controversial articles. Right? So, so why do we speak so negatively of some right, in our Book of Concord, in our Confession? This was done not only so that all may guard against these condemned doctrines, but also for certain other reasons that could in no way be ignored. So in it, so it is not at all our plan and purpose to condemn people who err because of a certain simplicity of mind, but are not blasphemers against the truth of the heavenly doctrine. Much less indeed do we in- intend to condemn entire churches that are either under the Roman Empire of the German nation or elsewhere. Rather, it has been our intention and desire in this way to openly criticize and condemn only the fanatical opinions and their stubborn and blasphemous teachers. We judge that they should in no way be tolerated in our dominions, churches, and schools. For these errors conflict with God's clear word. Right? So why point out errors that others would be warned against it? Right? They do so in such a way that they cannot be reconciled with the word. Right? So they're stubborn. What did he, what'd they say? Uh, stubborn and blasphemous, right? They won't, they won't change their mind. They're, they can't be shown by, by Scripture and clear reason. Uh, <clears throat> we have written condemnations also for this reason, that all godly persons might be diligently warned to avoid these errors. For we have no doubt whatsoever that even in those churches that have not agreed with us in all things, many godly and by no means wicked people are found. They follow their own simplicity and do not correctly understand the matter itself. But in no way do we do they approve the blasphemies that are cast forth against the Holy Supper as it is administered in our churches or according and according to Christ's institution. With the unanimous approval of all good people, the Lord's Supper is taught according to the words of Christ's testament itself. We also we are also in great hope that if these simple people would be taught correctly about all these things, the Spirit of the Lord abiding in them, they would agree with us and with our churches and schools to the infallible truth of God's word. And certainly a duty is laid especially upon all the church's theologians and ministers. With such fitting moderations, moderation, they also they should also teach from God's word um, those who have erred from the truth, either from a certain simplicity or ignorance. They should teach about the peril of their salvation. They should fortify them against the corruptions, lest against corruptions, lest all may perish while the blind are leaders of the blind think Matthew 15 there. Therefore, by our writing, we testify in the sight of Almighty God and before the entire church that it was never, it has never been our purpose by means of this godly formula for union to create trouble or danger to the godly who are suffering persecutions today. We have already entered into the fellowship of grief with them, right? We grieve with those who grieve. Moved by Christian love so that we are shocked at the persecution and most painful tyranny um, is used against these poor people with such severity. We sincerely detest it. In no way do we agree with the shedding of innocent blood, which undoubtedly will be required with great severity from the persecutors of the Lord's awful judgment and before Christ's court. Then, or they will then certainly render a most strict account and suffer fearful punishment. All right, so in other words, we're going to leave the judgment of these false teachers to God, even though now we, we call them out for their false teaching, which they, what was the words? Uh, stubbornly, yeah, fanatical opinions, and they're stubborn and blasphemous teachers. Right? Um, notice too that one of the chief concern of 
the formulators, so those who, these princes who undersigned the whole book of Concord, is the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, right? It's, a, it's central. And we forget that the Supper is the central, um, well, it's the center of the life of the church today, right? And that false doctrine in regards to the Supper cannot be tolerated because then it attacks the central article of faith, that is, um, salvation in Christ and Him alone. It's very interesting. And also the acknowledgement of our schools, right? I mean, at this point, we have multiple universities, um, but also we're thinking of the day schools, which had been founded under Melanchthon, that we can't teach error in our schools either. Um, that doesn't mean that that all are condemned, even if, uh, you know, simply out of ignorance or out of simplicity of mind, right? So they're careful about that, is that we're very much directed at the false teachers, not necessarily um, those in their charge who are the blind being led by the blind. All right, but again, that we grieve with those who grieve, right? So that's part of the reason why um, we call those in error to repentance, right? Because we're grieving with them at their um, following after false doctrine. All right. So like I said, we'll, we'll look at marriage tomorrow in particular. I have some things in mind there. Um, but if you really want a thorough exposition on marriage from um, our confessions, that would be in the large catechism on the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. You see Luther there very positively um, confess what marriage is and why it was given, right? But you'll have to wait for more till tomorrow. Good. Let's sing our hymn for the week to Jordan's River Came Our Lord as we celebrated the baptism this week. As God's own choice 
Rob Adams fall to save the world and free us all. Now rise, faint hearts, be resolute. This man is Christ, our substitute. He was baptized in Jordan Street, proclaimed Redeemer, Lord Supreme. We pray the collect for this week. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that they both perceive and know what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that for Jesus' sake, baptism works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this. As your words and promises declare. Comfort us and strengthen our faith in Jesus with the promise that whoever believes in him and is baptized will be saved. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray for the households of our church, especially that of Justin, Tanya, Chad and Mindy, Jack, Ron and Sandra, and Randy. Pray for our catechumens. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering. Continuing in our prayers, Marcella, Joe, Kelsey, Walt, Christopher, Dan, Brad, and Ron, Marla, Betty, Pat, Merlin, Heidi, and Dick. Pray for our homebound Ed, Paul, and Pauline. Missions and mercy work of the church, especially that of the urban ministries of our district. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, it's been a joy to have you with us here again. Uh, as I said, you might uh, take take the time to look at the Book of Concord, Large Catechism, um, Large Catechism, Ten Commandments, Sixth Commandment on uh, marriage, which is a, really a, a thoroughgoing exposition from Luther on the gift of marriage. Uh, that will help tomorrow as well for you. All right. Um, and there's other resources too, but that, that's a good place to look. Uh, so if you don't have a Book of Concord, you can always just go to bookofconcord.org online and you'll find the large catechism there. All right. So God's blessings to you all. I hope to see you in the morning for divine service at 9 a.m. and then for um, 
uh, instruction in God's Word. We're going to be looking at Ezekiel 10 and 11. We're going to actually try to do a little bit more than one chapter tomorrow, uh, but you'll see why tomorrow. All right. God's blessings to you all. Keep you safe. I see you in, see you in the AM. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.